I ask you, justice is uh, investigating cases of Allende and the death of President Eduardo Frei Montalva. In that new speech that you will announce, is it in, do you include that the U.S. is willing to collaborate with those judicial investigations, even that the United States is willing to ask for forgiveness for what it did in, in those very difficult years in the 70s in Chile? Well, uh, on the specific question of how we can work with the Chilean government, uh, any requests that are made uh, by Chile uh, to obtain more information about the past uh, is something that uh, we will certainly consider and we would like to cooperate. Uh, I think it's very important for all of us to know our history. Uh, you know, and obviously, the history of relations between the United States and Latin America uh, have at times been extremely rocky uh, and have at times been difficult. I think it's important, though, for us even as we understand our history and gain clarity about our history, that we're not trapped by our history. And the fact of the matter is, is that over the last two decades, we've seen extraordinary progress here in Chile. And that has not been impeded by the United States, but in fact has been fully supported by the United States. So I can't speak to all of the policies of the past, I can speak certainly to the policies of the present and the future. Welcome to the concluding episode of our three-part series covering U.S. action in Chile that resulted in a coup to depose democratically elected Socialist President Salvador Allende. In part one of this series, we covered the U.S. actions that attempted and failed to keep Allende from taking power after the election. Part two highlighted four Americans caught up in the events in order to show the immorality of the Nixon administration. In this final episode, we will cover the events behind the scenes that led to the coup in 1973 and the ramifications that still affect the relationship between the United States and Latin America. Finally, we will discuss what actions the U.S. needs to take to be a trusted partner with the rest of the Americas. Today, what we know of the September 11th coup against Allende comes from declassified government documents. Some of them are highly redacted, and others still classified. For example, the president's daily briefing put together by the CIA on September 8th, three days before the coup, is declassified in part, quote-unquote. Their assessments on Indochina, Europe, and Libya are declassified. The information on Chile, however, is still classified as top secret. The briefing for September 11th is also classified as well. After Allende won election and was sworn in, the Nixon administration scrambled to devise a plan. The CIA had spent over a decade working behind the scenes to keep Allende from getting elected. They had no contingency plans to deal with an Allende victory and were uncertain how they should handle the newly elected government. 
Some members of the intelligence agencies doubted Chile was destined to be another Cuba at this stage. Allende had been contacted by the Soviet government as early as 1953, yet he was never recruited by the KGB, nor took any payments. Allende passed a message on to Charles Meyer, a U.S. State Department official, stating that he would never allow Chilean soil to be used by any power hostile to the United States. He added that his ruling party coalition would not export its political systems to neighboring countries, joking that it would be impossible to export the UP as it was in Chile. First, he would have to export democracy. After all, Allende himself had been a political figure working within the Chilean democratic system for his entire political career. But, if Allende spoke out against a violent path to socialism, there were radicals in his coalition that did not. It is important to understand how the Chilean political system had worked. Allende was not a candidate of a single political party. In Chile, Different parties and factions coalesced around Allende as their standard-bearer in the presidential election. The Popular Unity Government was a coalition of five individual parties. Each had its own priorities, goals, tactics, and beliefs on where the socialist movement was headed. So, even if Allende spoke out against a violent expansion of Marxism, Carlos Altamirano, a cabinet member in the Allende administration, publicly stated his belief that civil war was inevitable and the left needed to prepare for armed insurrection. If Allende was trying to portray his movement as a peaceful democratic transition, these kinds of statements did not ease tensions with the United States. Finally, there is the connection to Cuba. When Allende came to power, he restored diplomatic ties to Cuba, and its leader, Fidel Castro, visited the country in November 1971. The United States isolated Castro in Cuba, and any relationship with the country would be met with U.S. disapproval. Allende meeting with Castro only supported the Nixon administration's preconceived conclusions about Allende's goal of a Marxist expansion. A decade earlier, Cuba was at the center of a nuclear standoff between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. This standoff nearly led to nuclear war when U.S. President John F. Kennedy imposed a military blockade of Cuba after it was discovered that the Soviet Union had installed nuclear missiles which could be used to attack the United States. About the Cold War, Gustafson writes, In the post-Cold War era, it is easy to trivialize or dismiss this struggle as foolish ideological sparring. But at the time, it was extraordinarily real and the ultimate cost of getting it wrong was nuclear war. To the United States in the 1960s, political subversion of pro-Western democracies was seen as a direct challenge to U.S. security allies and civilization. Just days after Allende won the election in September 1970, a White House meeting to discuss Chile was held. Nixon's handwritten note of that meeting read the following. Although there was a one in 10 chance, perhaps, they needed to save Chile. It was worth spending. Nixon was not concerned of the risks involved. He wanted no involvement of the U.S. Embassy. Had $10 million in funds available, more if necessary. Considered this a full-time job, the best men they had. Come up with a game plan. Make the economy scream. And in 48 hours, he wanted a plan of action. Thus, it became the administration's official policy to create the conditions necessary for the Chilean people 
to accept or demand the removal of Allende. There were many ways Nixon and Kissinger interfered with the internal politics of Chile during the Allende years. Here are a few examples. Augustin Edwards Eastman was a Chilean media magnet and owner of the El Mercurio newspaper. He was an outspoken critic of Allende. He also partnered with the CIA, which funded his newspaper to the tune of millions of dollars. This paper was a mouthpiece for anti-Allende and anti-communist propaganda. This connection was confirmed with the release of declassified CIA documents. One, dated September 30, 1971, states that the president has approved $700,000 to keep the paper running and authorizes that number to climb over $1 million if necessary. Another method was to sabotage the Chilean economy. The Nixon administration cut off any type of aid to the country. They also dried up avenues of credit, making it nearly impossible for Chilean industry to obtain new equipment or spare parts to maintain older equipment. The World Bank loaned Chile $31 million from 1969 to 1970 and zero between 1971 and 1973. Also, USAID went from $110 million to $3 million in the same period. As mentioned earlier, one of Nixon's directives was to make the economy scream. The U.S. dried up avenues for credit and stopped all developmental aid, throwing an already weak economy into turmoil. The Chilean people felt the ensuing economic pain. The wealthy could ride out bad times, and the poor suffered regardless. It was the middle class that felt squeezed the most. They were the true target of Nixon's policy edict because they would direct their growing dissatisfaction and anger at Allende and his policies. Up to this point, the Nixon administration had been successful in keeping their attempts to pressure the Allende government covertly. But that all changed on March 21, 1972, when syndicated journalist Jack Anderson wrote a story showing that the CIA had partnered with U.S. company International Telephone and Telegraph and was using the company as the middleman in their efforts in Chile. For example, ITT was where the payments to El Mercurio originated to keep the propaganda outlet running. Anderson had received 79 pages of records, document meetings, correspondence, and conversations between the Nixon administration officials ITT, and the U.S. Embassy in Santiago that showed their plans to create economic chaos and subvert the Allende administration. The fallout from this disclosure caused the U.S. Congress to hold hearings into the abuse of power by the CIA, but the worst part for the Nixon administration was that it brought their actions somewhat to light, which was their greatest fear from the beginning. This disclosure forced the CIA to shut down many of its efforts, but the damage in Chile had already been done. By the next year, the deteriorating economy created enough social unrest and division that a coup was inevitable. Chile today joined the list of South American countries to fall under military rule. Tonight, control of the Chilean government is in the hands of the country's armed forces. The presidential palace is under attack. As the bombs fell around the capital, Allende made a final address to the nation from the La Moneda Presidential Palace. It is an astonishing address filled with hope for the future from a leader resolute in the face of death, refusing to surrender, and proclaiming that the nation and its workers would one day be triumphant again. Trabajadores de mi patria, tengo fe 
en Chile su destino. Superará otros hombres este momento gris y amargo donde la traición depende por él. Sigan ustedes sabiendo que mucho más temprano que tarde, de nuevo, abrirán la grande salameda por donde pase el hombre libre para construir una sociedad mejor. ¡Viva Chile! ¡Viva el pueblo! ¡Vivan los trabajadores! Estas son mis últimas palabras y tengo la certeza de que mi sacrificio no se les pago. Tengo la certeza de que por lo menos será una lección moral que castigará la felonía, la cobardía y la traición. The clip we just heard translates to the following. Workers of my country, I have faith in Chile and its destiny. Other men will overcome this dark and bitter moment when treason seeks to prevail. Keep in mind that, much sooner rather than later, great avenues will again open through which will pass the free man to construct a better society. Long live Chile. Long live the people. Long live the workers. These are my last words, and I am certain that my sacrifice will not be in vain. I am certain that, at the very least, it will be a moral lesson that will punish felony, cowardice, and treason. This year marks the 50th anniversary of Allende's defiant stand and the end of his presidency. The U.S. involvement remains a wound that affects not only the nation's image in the world, but more importantly, it affects the ability of the U.S. to be a partner in Latin America. The statement made by President Obama was made at a joint press conference with Chilean President Sebastian Panera on March 23, 2011. Obama's statement was a political dodge to a question from a Chilean journalist regarding the possibility of a U.S. apology for the events that led to the coup against Allende and the cooperation of the U.S. government in regard to a Chilean investigation into those events. He made an important point in his speech on the same day from the Palacio de la Moneda, where Allende famously made his last stand and sacrificed his life. Last year, leftist leader Gabriel Boric became the youngest president in Chilean history. During his inauguration speech, he made several references to the 1973 coup. When talking about this moment in history, when he entered the La Moneda Palace before the inauguration ceremonies, he stated, quote, Through here passed Eduardo Frey Montalva and the popular promotion policies, Comrade Salvador Allende and the nationalization of copper, Patricio Alwyn and the return to democracy, Michelle Bachelet opening the unexplored roads with social provision policies. But these walls have also been witness to the horrors of past violence and oppression, horrors we have not forgotten and will not forget. Where we speak today, yesterday rockets came through. That can never again be repeated in our history. He closed his speech echoing the final words that Salvador Allende spoke to the Chilean people when he said, as Salvador Allende predicted almost 50 years ago, we are here once again, compatriots, opening the great avenues through which the free man and the free woman can walk to build a better society. We keep going. Long live Chile. As Borch took the oath of office, he put the U.S. and the world on notice that the wounds caused by U.S. policy in Chile 50 years ago and in Latin America for more than a century still need to heal. 
The United States has the capacity to be a positive force in this hemisphere, but the fact that the U.S. still has not displayed contrition over the events of the Nixon administration, or from those that followed, pollutes the political environment. Currently, China is investing in Latin America. Nixon and Kissinger were terrified of what they assumed Allende would bring to the region and the damage it could have inflicted on U.S. national security. But in the end, the U.S. did the greatest damage to the security of the United States. Every day, the U.S. government refuses to be completely transparent about its actions in Chile is another day the healing cannot begin and trust cannot be restored.